I would say the main goal by the time we finish this would be how involved should we be in knowing about what's happening in the world, whether economically or politically or otherwise, and then what is our role in it, and what part do we play in that. So that's the plan. Two sides, we'll see how far we get, but we should be able to finish, finish this out. So number one, go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. The first point is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, or of heaven, first. And that means we should seek first the things that concern the kingdom of God. So we're citizens of heaven first. That's what Philippians 3.20 says. If you read it, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then if you read verse 21, it says, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So back to verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, if you're a citizen of heaven first, then that makes you in this world a visitor, an alien. Yeah, that too. Um, there's other words in scripture, like in 1 Peter 2, it calls you a sojourner. In verse 11, 1 Peter 2, 11 says that we're sojourners and pilgrims, which means we're traveling through, we're here temporarily, but our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. So that's your first standing as a citizen is that it is of heaven and not of this present world. And that's the basis for everything we're going to get into in the rest of this teaching because if you don't start out with the perspective that you're a citizen of heaven first, then you're going to start to identify with the establishments of this world way too closely, and that creates problems. Okay, so then look at that bullet point under the first point there that says, winning souls and making disciples is the task given to us as our way of expanding the kingdom of God in the earth. So if you look at the scriptures at the end of point number one, where it says Matthew 6.33 and then Colossians 3.2, Matthew 6.33 is a very popular scripture that says, seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things shall be added to you. Meaning the things that the world is concerned about, those will be added to you if you seek first his kingdom. And then Colossians 3.2 says to set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. So that leaves, you with, leaves us with two instructions. Number one, seek first the things that concern God's kingdom. Number two, set your mind on things that are of the kingdom. So this is about your actions, what you seek, and then your mind, what you think about. Then, if you read Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which we will turn to next, this effectively summarizes what it means to set your actions and your mind on God's kingdom. And it's ultimately, as that bullet point says, about winning souls and making disciples. That's the task given to us. So Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Make disciples. So, when Matthew 6, 33, just to make this really practical, when it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, this is not some, you know, hopeful, mystical, just try to meditate on it, even though that might be part of it to, to meditate on it. Seeking first the kingdom of God in the context of Matthew 6 is about seeking the things that concern God's kingdom. Because earlier in that chapter, he talks about people of the world or Gentiles seeking the things of this world, which is what you put on, what you wear, the money you make, the food you eat, entertainment, and politics, actually. Uh, we'll get into that more in, uh, later here. So if the world seeks the things that are of this world, then our task is to seek the things that are of God's kingdom or the things that concern God's kingdom. And the one thing that concerns God's kingdom is to make disciples of all nations. Because the only way God's kingdom expands is by more people being added to the faith, ultimately. So Matthew 6, 33, if you put it in tandem with Matthew 28, uh, 19, makes seeking first the kingdom being about making disciples. Because that's how the kingdom expands. So that leaves us in conclusion with the first point, and this is the foundation of everything we're getting into, that if you are a citizen of God's kingdom, your role first is to do and focus on what concerns the expansion of God's kingdom. That's winning souls and making disciples. That's what we should focus on. Number two. Our job is not to preserve this present world, but to save as many people out of this present world as we can to preserve them for the new world to come. So we're not going to look at all uh, of these scriptures that are listed here, but we will turn to 2 Peter 2 verses 4 through 9. So let's go there. Second Peter chapter two, we will start in verse four, just as a reference, Galatians one verse four says that God has delivered us out of this present evil age. And second Timothy four eighteen says God will preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. So being a believer, being saved means you are saved out of this present evil age. That's what Galatians 1.4 says. And being preserved, which is that, that same Greek word for saved, sozo, is being preserved for his heavenly kingdom. So then if we read, start 2 Peter 2 verse 4, it uses examples from the Old Testament and says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Pause there. Talking about Noah. He destroyed the world and saved Noah and his family out of it. It's an Old Testament example that has a, 
a repeat today. So let's go into verse 6 now. Then it says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Pause there. Two cases. He saves Noah out of the world and destroys the world. Then he saves Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, we won't turn there, but if you read in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says that the flood of Noah was meant to be a type of a judgment to come, which means this world, God is going to judge and destroy. Again, everything in it. And we're being saved out of it. And that's why the second point is that our job is not to preserve this present world, but to save as many people out of it as we can for the new world to come. There is uh, one other verse that we will look at later, but I want to turn there real quickly since we'll just cover it briefly first. So same book, Second Peter, go to chapter 3. Verse 11, or 10, excuse me, Second Peter 3, verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord, this is about Christ returning, will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Everything's going to be destroyed, the earth and the works that are in it, and a new earth will be created. So, if we live to preserve what we have here, we're missing the point. We're trying to save out of the coming destruction, what will be preserved for the new earth. And that's what salvation is about. Okay, go to that bullet point and we'll turn to John chapter 18. Jesus's kingdom is not of this present world. In other words, we're not trying to build a Christian government to rule the world. That's where the Roman Catholic Church got it wrong. It was never about establishing a human government with Christian ideals because God's kingdom is not of here, nor is it from here. And the only one who has the right and authority to establish that kind of government is Jesus himself. And he will do that at a later date, but that would get into end times, which we're not going to talk about right now. So for now, turn to John chapter 18. And we'll start in verse 36. John 18, verse 36. This is Jesus speaking to Pilate. So Jesus is talking to a politician right here. Here's what he says. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. 
He states that if his kingdom were of this world, his servants would fight. His servants are his disciples, right? So he's saying, if my kingdom were earthly, then my disciples would be tasked with becoming a military. But because his kingdom isn't of this earth, it is of no concern to him to have his disciples and he himself killed, crucified. And that actually happened to Jesus. He was crucified. And it happened to his 12 disciples, the apostles. Everyone except for one of them was martyred. He never intended for them to set up a military. He said they would do that if my kingdom were of this world, but it's not. Any questions so far? Okay. Number three. So now that we know Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, and we're citizens of the kingdom, what should it look like to live here? So number three says, believers should be everywhere in the world as influences for the kingdom. Jesus says, like yeast that leavens a lump of dough. So go to Matthew chapter 13. Verse 33. Matthew 13, verse 33. Uh, actually, for the sake of context, let's start in verse 31. 33 is what we'll focus on, but 31 gives us a little more context. So Matthew 13, 31 says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So that first parable is used as an analogy to say that the influence of God's kingdom on this earth is like people sowing seed in the ground, and they won't see the fruits of it until later. So every time we go and share the gospel, every time we share the word, with somebody that's sowing seed in the ground and it'll grow up later. Verse 33, another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman or yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And I think he notes several measures of meal or several lumps of dough rather than one, because when we sow seed or preach the gospel or spread the word, it's like you're hiding yeast everywhere. This world is like these lumps of dough or these measures of meal. We're putting yeast in it everywhere and it slowly rises, slowly grows, but we're not going to see the full effect of it until Christ returns. But that's ultimately what we're doing. He uses these two analogies. One is like sowing seed in the ground. The second is like putting yeast in dough. And that means our influence should be everywhere, ultimately. So go to those bullet points under the third point there. Therefore, Christians should be in every arena of society, in politics, in sports, in entertainment, in education, etc. Christians should be everywhere in order to influence people towards knowing Christ. So it is correct for a person to say that there should be believers in politics. Absolutely. Just like there should be believers working at McDonald's down the street. Also, there should be believers everywhere because everywhere there are people. And wherever there's people, they should be hearing about the gospel. Amen? That's ultimately the point. Second bullet point. Being salt and light in this world is about doing good works. 
which would be the works of Jesus. Strive to act as Jesus did no matter where you are. Go to Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Being salt and light, this is another analogy that Jesus used. Matthew 5, 13, starting there, says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He finishes with the world seeing our good works, and that's the main focus. Now, this passage is often misinterpreted because when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, people think about the definition of salt or what, what salt does. It enhances flavor and it preserves. And so many have used this scripture to say that if we're a preservative in the earth, then that means we should be preserving religion, if you will, some people would say, in this earth. Now, there is an element of truth to that. Because we should be keeping the gospel spreading. That would be a preservation effect. But where it's skewed is where people will try to say that Christians should be preserving this world as though we're supposed to keep everything held together. But that's not the point. Because we were, we just read, and this is from the second point, we're not supposed to preserve this present world. It's going to perish. It's going to die. It's going to get worse. It's going to be destroyed. That's not our job. Our job is to keep the gospel spreading, to save as many people out of this world as we can. And it's about the world seeing our good works. And that's part of the light or the salt that we are in this earth. So if you're focused on doing the works of Jesus and spreading his word, that makes you salt and light. But don't expect Christian influence to be this preservation of worldly establishments that God says will be destroyed because that's not the goal. Okay. Number five, supposed to be four. <laughs> oh, that's right. No, point number five was uh, supposed to be four and five, but I got rid of four and combined it into one and I forgot to change the number. We'll just call it five. That's fine. Point number five. <laughs> This world is going to grow worse, and it's going to perish no matter what we do. So then the question is, okay, well, why are we doing anything at all, right? Therefore, working only to preserve this present world's establishments is a futile exercise. We read 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, which states that everything in this earth and the works that are in it will be burned up melted with fervent heat, and we're therefore waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. That's what's going to happen. So why are we trying to save it? Don't recycle. <laughs> uh, don't recycle. That was a comment. That's prohibited. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. So, yeah, it's all going to be burned up. So why try to save it? Because the point is about people. It's about saving people. Not, not the earth itself and the works or establishments that are in it. Go to 2 Timothy 3, 
Verse 13. Second Timothy 3. Verse 13 says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, so what's our job? But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Pause there. He says, the first thing, Things are going to get worse. They're going to be bad. So you should concern, be concerned with yourself. Worry about yourself. You continue in what you've learned. Stay established in the faith. That's the point. But don't expect things to get better because they're not. They're going to get worse as far as the world is concerned. Notice verse 12. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So not only is the world going to get worse, but one effect that's going to have is that you're going to be persecuted. One of the things that will start happening when the world gets worse is more believers will be, will be persecuted. And we're not told to try to stop that. We're told that's just going to happen. Okay, so now we've got to cover some disclaimers, and that's what those bullet points are about. So if it's all going to perish, why do anything at all? So the first bullet point says, if helping to preserve the policies and freedoms of this world helps us to more effectively spread the gospel, we should do so. But it's about the perspective. If we're doing what we're doing so we can have a more effective evangelism, then that's good. But if we're doing it just to preserve the establishments of the world, and that's it, then that's worthless because it's going to perish. So we should, we should act not for the sake of the world itself, but for the sake of the kingdom of God. One example would be, in this nation, in the United States, we have a remarkable religious freedom. You can talk about Jesus nearly anywhere without much resistance at all. And even if you do face resistance, nobody's going to kill you for it. And that's awesome that we have that here. And we have that because of people who fought to preserve some, some policies and freedoms that we still enjoy today. And that has made the gospel spread in the United States very quickly, at least over the course of the past 200 years that this nation's been around. Now, should we appreciate that? Yes. Should we desire to keep that going? Yes, absolutely. But the only way you're ultimately going to show that you appreciate value and take advantage of that is by the action of spreading the gospel. Because that's what the religious freedom is for. So that gets to the second bullet point. We should be saving souls. Preaching the gospel to save souls can happen in many ways. So we should take advantage of every means and opportunity that we have to spread the gospel. So if we can get the gospel on TV, if we can get it on the radio, if we can get it on social media, if we can get it on signs, billboards, tracks, any and every means and opportunity we have, we should take advantage of. Because we have that freedom in this nation. But if we're not using our freedom to spread the gospel, then what are we doing? What are we voting for if we're not doing that? So we'll cover that more later. Okay, go to number six. Believers being in politics, as with anything else, should be about helping the gospel spread. 
If influencing legislation will create another way for the message, message of Christ to reach people's ears, then it can be a good work. That bullet point. However, what's most important is that we boldly preach Christ in our daily lives. Political activity must never come before a day-to-day -day evangelism. In other words, it's okay as a person to be passionate about a particular occupational work. If that happens to be politics, no big deal. That's awesome. But that can't come before the preaching of the gospel as a regular practice of our lives. And there are ways in which changes in legislation makes the spread of the gospel faster. And yet, we can't state that as a incontrovertible truth because there are nations like Iran, for example, where the gospel is spreading very quickly and it is the most if not one of the most restricted areas in the world. So, is it nice to have changes in legislation that make it easier to preach the gospel? Yes. Is it absolutely critical? No. Because it is more about the boldness of a nation's people rather than the policies of that nation. Right? It's more about your boldness and less about the laws. Because no matter what law is put in place, that shouldn't change how bold you are. Amen? Question? Do we have a microphone for, for Clifford? It's for the sake of the recording. We use the microphone, yeah. Thank you. When I read the New Testament, um, the earlier church, they were really persecuted. Yeah. And it seemed like the more they were put to death and persecuted, the more they spread. And the Policies were going against them of that time, like Rome. But they spread the more they persecuted. So you tie that into... Is that still valid? Yeah. 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 So the reason why they spread, and this goes all the way back to the Old Testament, Genesis, Tower of Babel, what happens? They all have one language, one people. They love to stick together. They get clicky. The entire population of the earth was one nation and one language. And they wanted to build a tower to commemorate themselves and their work. And God specifically confused their language to have them scattered because his task from the beginning for them was to fill the earth and subdue it. Jump forward to the New Testament. The believers do the same thing. They are all in Jerusalem. And they're trying to turn Jerusalem into one giant Christian utopia. And so God used the persecution to scatter the believers. So then their preaching also was scattered and you had seed being spread in more places. So does persecution have to happen for us to scatter preaching the word? No, but in many cases that's what's required because people naturally get comfortable in one place, right? But God does use persecution to the church's advantage, but we have to look at it from that perspective. It doesn't mean we have to hope or pray for persecution, but it does mean that it is a tool that God uses to help believers scatter so that the word is preached further and wider. Okay. Uh, number six. Oh, we just finished number six. Okay, number seven. Authorities are sent and put in place by God. Now, this is where it gets a little bit more controversial, so I'll try to take this slow and explain it well. But authorities are sent and put in place by God. Go to Romans chapter 13. 
We'll start in verse 1. Romans 13, verse 1. says, let every soul be subject, that's submitted or obedient, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, I've heard this scripture taught that the offices of authority are appointed and put in place by God. But we're going to look at some other scriptures that actually say the people that are in power are put in power by God. We're going to look at scriptures that say that. But as a starting point, Romans 13.1 is very clear. Be submitted to governing authorities because there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Then you go to verse 2. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. That word resist is a, it's a fighting word, just like when you see Romans, or excuse me, James 4, 7 that says submit to God and resist the devil, and then he will flee from you. It's an offensive word. Resisting authority, in other words, posing a threat or a danger to the authorities that are established in this world is disobedience to God, and that will uh, cause us to bring judgment on ourselves. Look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 now, That's where we'll turn next. 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 14. Verse 13 says that we're to submit to every ordinance of man, similar to Romans 13. Get to verse 14. Says to submit to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. So Romans 13 says that authorities are put in place by God. 1 Peter 2.14 says that these authorities are sent by God. So if you continue in the comments I have written here, it says God's will alone determines who is put in power. Ruling authority is given to whomever God chooses. Men are not in control of who gets to be king or governor. God uses whomever is in power to accomplish his purpose. So no man can overthrow his purpose. God is in charge. That's the point. One moment. Now, a question that comes up with this is, okay, so if we, like in this nation, go and vote and the decisions of the people decide who gets put in power, how does that work? And this is combining man's choices with God's sovereign purpose. Now, God's will actually depends on the choices that we make. What God's will means is that God knows the choices we're going to make beforehand. And so he exercises control over the choices that are given to us so that whoever in this nation, at least, Whoever we vote into power, God predetermined beforehand, knowing that he would use the choices that we made. So, in other words, just because people voted somebody into power doesn't mean that escaped God's control. God is still the one 
who ultimately put that person in power. And it, this comes down to these bullet points, which we'll read next. Crosby, did, do you have your, your question? Um, yeah, I was curious. So like the Romans verse, if you go back like a couple, whatever, I think it was like two verses ago, mm -hmm. it was saying like if you go against, like if you resist authority or like resisting God's ordinances, in what capacity is like, like let's say we have like 10 years time, like the president is saying like anti-Christian, you know, things and putting them in place so that we can't exercise our freedom of religion as we do now. Like what, what does resisting that mean necessarily? Because like fighting back, it, it, like if you're just exercising our, our, you know, what we do as Christians, like going to church and Bible studies, or whatever. Um, like, what does resisting authority mean in that context? I guess we'll get to that later. Yeah, okay. that that comes up in uh, uh, number eight. So we'll we'll get to that momentarily. But great question. Yeah. So you probably anticipated this question. So okay, God appoints authorities, but not always godly authorities. Okay, so um, Hitler. Some might say, how could he allow that? So let's read these bullet points and then I'll cover that. Okay. So these are all based on scriptures that you can read because I have them cited there. First one says rulers are ministers of God, which means that ultimately they serve God's purpose. God raises up and removes kings. That's in Daniel 2. The most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. So God is still ultimately the one in charge, no matter who's in power. And that fourth one, all rulers are directed by God. Proverbs 21.1 is a great verse. It says the, the heart of the king, or the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and as a river of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So no matter who's in power, God uses and directs their thoughts, their decisions, for his work and purpose. So when you get to the question of like terrible, terrible rulers or oppressive rulers like Hitler, it comes down to how, how God's will works, which is every single human being is given a free will. We're given choices. It's up to God to determine how he's going to use the choices that we make. So Hitler made choices as did the people that he uh, was teamed up with, that got him put into power. God allowed that to happen and then used even the very wicked things that Hitler did to accomplish something that he knew needed to happen. And if you get into the discussion around what those things were that God accomplished, sometimes we won't even know until we get to the life to come, the age to come. But we can rest assured that no matter who is put in power, it does not throw off God's plan. It does not thwart his purpose. Uh, Job 42 verse 2 says, no purpose of God can be withheld from him. So if God decides or purposes to do something, nothing will stop it from coming to pass. Nothing that Hitler did stopped God's plan from coming to pass. So even the decisions that Hitler made, God used. And that can be hard to swallow for a lot of people, but God has to give us a free will. Hitler had a free will just like any one of us, and God used him as he has used anyone else. 
Okay, so those scriptures and those bullet points that are listed, you guys can read into those more on your own time if you'd like, but it makes it very clear that everybody who's put in power is put in power by God. God lets them be in power, and he uses every one of them and turns their desires however he wishes. Let's go to number eight. Now we get to our civil responsibilities, and this will address your question, Crosby, about what it means to resist. So go to that first bullet point. Believers are to live peaceably. Well, let's turn to that scripture first. So 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. First Timothy 2, verse 1 says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. So we should be thankful for anyone who is in power. It doesn't matter how oppressive or evil they are. Then he says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And then it says, verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So now let's look back at these bullet points. So believers are to live peaceably. What does peaceably mean? So if you look at the Greek word, I have it in quotes there, it means to stay in one's seat or in your proper place. So there's people who have a seat of authority in governments, you don't have that seat. So sit down. <laughs> That's the point. That's what the word literally means in Greek. So stay in your proper place in society where you're appointed, where God has you posted is enough. So stay in your seat. That's what it means. We are to live quietly. Quietly doesn't mean never open your mouth. It simply means to be meek, to be submissive, to be gentle and kind. And to not speak quickly or hastily. Then it says to pray for rulers. So if you put this in order, it means we're not to threaten human governments or attempt to overthrow them. And that's what John 18, 36, which we read earlier, is about. Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, I would have my servants fight. So fighting against governments is one of the main things that this is addressing. In other words, don't riot assassinate, or participate in rebellion. There's plenty of people that are doing that anyway. <laughs> we don't have to get involved in that, nor should we. Because God's kingdom is not of this world. So therefore, we don't fight. Now, what can we do? That's what this sub-point is there. We can, however, speak for our rights given to us by governments. So if you look at Acts 16, 35 through 39, and then Acts 22, 23 through 29, we're not going to read those, but I'll uh, paraphrase them. Those are two cases where Paul called upon rights given to him as a Roman citizen, and he expected them to be enforced for his own sake. But he was not resisting a law of his government. He was submitting to a law and expecting that the government honored that law. However, even in the case where he wasn't given the privilege of those rights, he didn't fight back. So he didn't have a fit and try to shake himself out of prison. He still submitted to it. 
but his example does show us that he did exercise his right to say, hey, your government says that I can do this. You should let me. And that actually got him out of being arrested at least one time. Because the centurion who initially was trying to arrest him was like, oh, you're right. That is in our laws. <laughs> so we got to let you go, right? So in other words, if you have the opportunity to escape unnecessary hardship by calling upon a right you have from the laws of your nation, that's good. You should do that wherever you have the opportunity. But if the government, which is still the authority, decides to dishonor that law and they throw you in prison anyway, we shouldn't fight back. Otherwise, we'd be threatening, rebelling, destroying, or resisting the ordinance of God. Right? So use your rights where you can. Sometimes we can't. But that's okay. God's still in control. So you guys can read those Acts 16 and Acts 22 scriptures on your own time. They're, they're really good as far as examples go. Next bullet point. Believers are to submit to rulers and honor them. So go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13, says, Therefore submit yourselves every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, just for the sake of context, I find this interesting. When Peter says here, honor the king, the king he's talking about was Nero, which back then at this time was one of the worst emperors that Rome ever had in relationship to the Christians. He uh, set the city on fire himself and then blamed it on Christians so that he had an excuse to kill more of them. And the way he killed them was very brutal. And I won't get into that. But that's the king that Peter is talking about. And he says, honor that guy. So he's making no distinction, nor is he being partial about who you're honoring. So we're told, submit to rulers and honor them. Keep reading here. We can only willfully disobey human laws when they require us to disobey God's laws. If you read in Acts chapter 5, 27 through 29, I won't turn there, but that's an example where Peter and John are in front of, at the time, their ruling authority in Jerusalem. And the authorities commanded Peter and John not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. But they knew they were commanded by God to preach in the name of Jesus. So they said we ought to obey God rather than men. This is pretty much the only explicit case in the New Testament where you see the apostles saying, sorry guys, we're not going to obey that law. Because obeying that law would have required them to disobey God. So we're told to submit everywhere except where it would move us to disobey what God says. In that case, we can disobey, but we're still to do so with respect. Next bullet point. Believers are to pay taxes. We won't read those scriptures that are cited there, but you can pull those up on your own time. We're supposed to pay our taxes. Next one. 
Believers are to submit to governments even if they are ordered to be arrested and imprisoned or martyred. This is where it gets interesting. Uh, you guys can read Matthew 10, verses 16 through 18 on your own. We're going to turn to 1 Peter 2, start in verse 19. 1 Peter 2. Verse 19 says, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. What's the this? The this is doing good and suffering for it. You are called to that, he says, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So you pause there. Isaiah 53, 7 is the verse where it says that Jesus was led as a lamb to the slaughter or as a sheep to its shearers is silent. And it's literally speaking of when Jesus quietly and without any resistance yielded himself to being crucified and tortured. And it says he did this, verse 23 says, to commit himself to God who judges righteously. Which means that as soon as you take the position of a person who resists a government order for you to be killed, you take the place of judge at that point. In other words, you try to be the one to say, no, this isn't going to happen. This is assuming you're being led away to be, we'll just use the term crucified, as Jesus was. But by letting God be the judge, that means you let him be in charge of how he will take vengeance on those who kill you unjustly or harm you unjustly. Now, there are cases where we do have a right to fight back, but it is not in the context of government authorities. In Isaiah 53, when it's talking about him being led as a lamb to the slaughter, the people that led him as a lamb to the slaughter were the people who were of the Jewish and Roman government. Those were the people that crucified him. And in that case, we're told to not revile in return, to not threaten, to not resist, but to yield to it. However, Matthew 10 says, if you're persecuted in one city, flee to another. Which means, if you can run away, do it. <laughs> in other words, if you have a chance to escape, you should escape. Don't just roll over and let anything happen just because you want to be a nice pacifist Christian. Okay. But if you can't flee, that's where we're told as Jesus, don't threaten, don't revile in return, don't resist what in this case is an ordinance of man, which is to kill you. If it comes to that, it says like Christ, a lamb led to the slaughter, let God judge them. Don't get in the way of that. Get in the way of God judging them. Personally, and I don't have chapter and verse for this, but personally, 
I believe that we have a right as believers to fight and resist death if it's by a common civilian persecutor. If it's by a government, it's in that context that we're told if we can't escape to let it happen. One moment. Uh, and the way I have it written here in this bullet point is, we are not instructed to yield to martyrdom if being threatened by common civilian persecutors. Yielding to death is only commanded specifically in contexts where martyrdom is carried out by governing authorities. Now that, the part about, specifically the part about, if somebody tries to kill me, okay, somebody puts a gun to my head, says, I'm going to kill you if you don't renounce Christ. I'm going to say I'm a believer, but I'm also going to try to not die. <laughs> okay? Because if I live longer, I can preach the gospel longer. So that's why I believe it's important to know some martial arts. If you can use it, it's a good idea. However, that's my opinion. <laughs> what is not my opinion is that the context of submitting or yielding to death is in the context of when you're being arrested, thrown in prison, or killed by governing authorities. In that case, resisting would be resisting a governing authority, and that disobeys Romans 13, which says don't resist the ordinance of man. So, did you have a question? So, two things. Yeah. One, do you have any scripture of like, or examples of Paul or anyone in Acts like defending themselves in any way? It depends on how you look at it, because there are examples where Paul, Barnabas, Silas were being basically swarmed by crowds who wanted to kill them, and they escaped. It doesn't say how, but it says they escaped. So I don't know about you, but if I was being swarmed by a crowd that wanted to stone me, I would at least push and shove. <laughs> Now, it doesn't give us details. It doesn't say that they just, like, Houdini'd their way out of the crowd, okay? It just says they escaped. Same thing happened to Jesus. Yeah, Jesus did that. So that's another case. It's passing through the midst of them. He went with his way. It says that's what happened to Jesus. We don't know exactly what that looked like. There are a couple other cases where Jesus escaped death. We don't know how it happened. But I would say what you do have in Scripture is that if you have a chance to escape, you should. And if the people arresting you or trying to kill you are just, you know, common civilian people who hate you for whatever reason, and you have a way to escape, you should. Sh you should. And I think it's okay to fight back a little bit. Like I said, I don't have chapter and verse for that, but I don't have chapter and verse that says anything against that either. So, yeah. So, um... They also had great faith. They were performing they many signs and wonders. So it's like maybe they didn't need to, but prior to them having the Holy Spirit, when Jesus was about to be crucified, he's like, mm -hmm. go sell your tunic, I think it was, and buy a sword. Mm -hmm. And so why would he tell them to buy a sword? Yeah. Uh, there's, I don't want to get into that in detail, but Jesus did tell his disciples to bring a sword with them before he went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. But then when Peter tried to use it against the people arresting Jesus, he rebuked him for it, which tells you the swords were not to be used against the governing authorities because that's what Jesus rebuked, and that's what Scripture says. 
So that means the swords were for something else. The Bible doesn't say, but my personal opinion was it, they would have been used against people that would have tried to stop Jesus from being crucified, ultimately. But I don't have chapter and verse for that. That's an opinion. Microphone. Yeah, isn't there an example where one of the disciples cut some guy's ear off when Jesus was going to get crucified? Yeah. Jesus was like, hey, what are you doing? You yeah. Do that. Yep. yeah, that was Peter. Um, Peter always gets called out for stuff like that. Um, Peter, Peter had, the reason why Peter had a sword on him was because Jesus told him to bring it, which is the interesting part of it. Now, Jesus was not contradicting himself. He was telling Peter he was using the sword in the wrong way. He was using it against a governing authority, which he wasn't supposed to do. But what we're not told is what he was supposed to use the sword for. Obviously, it was supposed to be some form of defense, but we don't know what it was. But we do know he wasn't supposed to use it against the government. Yeah. When he told him to bring the sword or to buy swords, he also said uh, a money pack or a pack of some kind. So it was. I think it was for in between. I'll turn this into a question. Mm. It was in between the time when he was gone and the Holy Spirit came, mm. that they were had to provide for themselves, look after themselves. Mm -hmm. That's a good you, point. You think that's valid? It's possible. I'm not sure about that, but I know they're also pretty terrified too, from that point on. So it's a good observation. Is it possible that? He told them to bring the sword because he knew and was going to use that as an object lesson of what not to do. That's also a possibility. We know that he did use it for a lesson anyway. So, yeah, good observation. Yeah, did you have a question? Um, when you said it's okay to fight back, um, how do you reconcile that with um, Matthew 5.39? Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So in that case, if you look at the uh, cultural context of that scripture, there's also, a, a, in that same passage, he says, if somebody asks you to go one mile, go with him too. That was a direct reference to Roman soldiers that would abuse their authority against the Jews. And these Roman soldiers would have to take packs and supplies, you know, across different parts of Judea and Samaria. And they would take random Jews off the street and require them to carry their luggage for them for no reason. Go the extra mile, right. So he, what he's saying is if a Roman soldier tells you that you have to go a mile with them to carry their luggage just because they're being rude, don't resist them. Go a second mile. Offer to go a second mile. Then in that context, if they strike you, that means if a Roman soldier hits you for whatever reason, turn to him the other cheek also. Jesus is not saying that in the context of somebody coming to you specifically because of your faith and saying, for example, um, you know, if you don't renounce Christ, I'm going to kill you. That's not the context. What he was talking about was people being oppressive just because. And don't fight back in, in that context because it's a way that you show submission to, which in this case was Roman authorities. That's what the case is. 
Now, you can also use that scripture to speak to, you know, like people being being bullied or in school or whatever. You know, there's, there's different discussions you could get into about that. I'm not going to get into that right now. But generally speaking, that passage is not talking about the context of uh, being threatened for your faith. It's, and back then culturally, it was about Roman soldiers trying to persuade Jews to help them in doing so rudely. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, let's move on here. Oh, yep. Go for it. Microphone. Okay, I have a few questions, but going back to number five, the first bullet point, mm-hmm. um, how do we know if it would be helpful to preserve the freedoms? Because my understanding and like firsthand living in China someone else Mm -hmm. uh, mentioned too that the persecution helps spread the gospel faster than with these freedoms so how do we know like to vote for and I know we're getting to voting but right yeah how do we know that Freedom is actually helpful. We would know that the freedom is helpful simply by the effect that it has. But every nation's different. And not every nation that has freedom, or not all believers in nations that have a measure of freedom, use their freedom. And there are nations that are persecuted, and without any freedom, they still spread the gospel a lot. So it really just depends on the attitude and activity of the person uh, or the people group that you're dealing with. I would say that in cases where people are not using their freedom, where believers are not spreading the gospel, I think in that case, this is my opinion, God would probably allow there to be more persecution that would increase just to simply get them moving. But in nations where people are using their freedom well, you could say that God might want them to preserve that freedom a little longer if they're using it well, you know, but that's my opinion. And I just know personally that I'm, I'm using my freedom to spread the gospel. And so I would want to vote to keep that freedom. But I also know, and we'll get into this later, that that freedom can be taken away. The Bible says it will be taken away one day and that's not going to stop me. But while I have the time and the freedom, I want to take advantage of it. So it all depends on what God will do on the basis of the condition a people group is in. And we won't know that, but God does. So does that answer the question? I, I guess it depends what we're, or who we're calling Christians to. Yeah. In this nation, a lot of people say they're Christian, but don't act the same right. as Christian. And mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. You know, yep, yep. And God knows that, you know. So it depends on what he, what he decides, ultimately. Okay, so let's move forward here. This question, this is the second part of this teaching. To what extent should believers be involved in or informed of political matters? So this gets into voting. Voting is a way that believers can attempt, and I say the word attempt because sometimes it doesn't work. <laughs> voting is a way that believers can attempt to influence the spread of good in this world. Because of what scripture says or doesn't say, 
It is not a sin to not vote, but we should vote because we have the ability to choose between life and death or good and evil in the U.S. So we should use that ability to choose life by voting for what's good. Scripture says choose between life and death. You should choose life. And voting is a way that we can choose life, and that's almost a pun. Uh, literally, <laughs> choose life if you're talking about abortion, for example. Um, so we should choose life where we can. Next bullet point. However, no matter what we do to influence legislation, nothing will stop the world from perishing on God's timing. So you can vote all you want. You can choose life all you want. And I think that's good. It's a good testimony. It's a good witness. But the world's going to perish on God's timing. And we're not going to stop that. So it's really about trying to be thankful for the freedom that we have and take advantage of it for as long as we can. But it's up to God to decide um, you know, when the world's going to overturn that. Third bullet point. Again, spreading the gospel always comes first. Now the sub point here gets a little deeper. A lack of religious freedom should have absolutely no effect on how much we share our faith. If you're not bold about your faith now with the freedom that you have, what makes you think you're going to be bold about it when your freedom is taken away? If you're not bold about your faith now with the freedom that you have, what makes you think that you're going to be bold about it when your freedom is taken away? And our freedom will be taken away. Rest assured. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 says that a falling away will come first. This means a defection from truth. This is not, it, it, the scripture does not say it's about the church. It just simply says there will be a departure from truth. And that also always results in a loss of freedom. Always. Every nation, history repeats itself. You depart from the faith, you depart from biblical truth, nations collapse. That will happen, and God says here it must come first before we see the, the end of this age. So there will be a loss of freedom, guaranteed. It will happen. So don't try to say that you're voting to preserve your religious freedom if you're not even using it. If you're not using your freedom to preach the gospel, then you're not voting for your freedom. You're just voting for your comfort. It is easy to live in the United States right now. And if we get really passionate about politics and our rights and voting and all that, but we're not using our freedom to do the Great Commission, what are we voting for? We're just voting for a comfort because we like it here. So use your freedom for what the Bible says to use it for so that we can get the most done that we absolutely can before this falling away happens. Because when that happens and we can't stop it, we got to keep preaching. But if we're not going to preach now, then what makes you think we're going to do it then? Right? Amen? Okay. Number two. This is about knowing world news. How informed should you be? That's the question. We should know about what's happening in the world if it will help us to prepare, prepare for coming calamity. Go to Proverbs 22, verse 3. Proverbs 22, verse 3. Says. 22, verse 3 of Proverbs says, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. But the simple pass on and are punished.
we have a responsibility to be wise and to be prudent. Prudence means using wisdom with consideration of the future. That's what prudence is. Considering what's coming in the future. And says your response should be, if you're responsible, that you foresee it and hide yourself. Prepare for it. Be ready for it. But the simple pass on and are punished. So in other words, if we're ignorant, that's what simple is. We're ignorant, careless, think everything doesn't matter. Just try to be a free spirit. You'll end up being punished for it. You'll bring judgment on yourself. So it does say to foresee evil and prepare for it. And in some ways, I'm not going to say in all ways, but in some ways, being somewhat informed of what's happening and what's being reported on the news can be a way that you can foresee evil. However, all of the major events that are going to concern the church, at least in the age that we now live in, are written about in scripture anyway. So you get news reading the Bible and it's the best kind of news because it accurately predicts the future. Unlike the weatherman. So you'll have plenty of information reading the Bible, but I would agree because I read some headlines, global headlines that if knowing about what's happening in the world will help you prepare for the future, then it's a good thing, especially if you're dealing with economical concerns. Um, I do believe there's going to be a, a, an economic collapse of some sort in this nation in the foreseeable future. That's my opinion. But global, global yeah, that's yeah, more accurate. Global. And if we know that's going to happen, we should be prepared for it. Right? But we should be well set financially anyway, regardless. So if foreseeing evil and preparing yourself requires considering what's happening in the news, then, then it can be a good thing. Because we are responsible to know what's coming and to be prepared for it. Go to the bullet points. Believers should not, however, meditate on things of this world. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 talks about that. We read verse 2 earlier. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. You can look at the news to foresee and prepare. But as soon as you start meditating on the news, obsessing over it, never turning the TV off, that's all you think about. When you talk to believers, that's all you talk about. It becomes an addiction nearly that distracts from heavenly matters and will avert us from focusing on Christ. So we can't let it get out of hand. One can be prudent and consider the future of the world without meditating on or setting the mind on things of this world. So you're not to meditate on things of the world. You're not to set your mind on the things of the world, but you can occasionally look into it if it will help you foresee and prepare for the future. Amen? I didn't get an amen for that. Amen. I was going to say. Second bullet point. <laughs> Use this world's resources and information to your advantage, but do not abuse these things by obsessing over them. Go to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 31. Let's actually start in verse 30. No, verse 29. <laughs> verse 29. The sentence starts in verse 29, so we'll start there. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. And the more time passes, the shorter it gets. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. 
pause there, summarize. Time is short, the world's going to pass away. So he's saying, don't get too attached to your relationships, your emotions, or your possessions. That's what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Verse 31. And those who use this world as not misusing it. KJV says abusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. So what does it mean to use this world? Well, you use this world by getting a job, making money, and providing for your family. You are using the resources and opportunities available to you in this present world. But to abuse or misuse this world as a believer would be living for the resources and opportunities of this world. You start to get obsessed with the stuff that this world can offer you. That would be abusing it or misusing it. So we're commanded to use this world for an advantage, but don't misuse it because the form of this world is passing away. It's going to perish. It's going to pass away, so don't get too attached to it. So when it comes to things like the news or being informed, that is a resource of information that you can use to your advantage. It can help you to prepare financially, for example. But we can't obsess over it, otherwise that would be a misuse of the information we have access to. Okay, let's just go back to what we started with. Remember, we are citizens of the kingdom of God first. And we should seek first the things that concern the kingdom. That is played out by winning souls and making disciples. That's our task. That's our way of expanding the kingdom of God on this earth. So make disciples. Use the opportunities of the information, resources you have in this world. But be honorable, be submissive to authorities, trust that God knows what he's doing, and be prepared for what's coming. Amen? Any more questions? Final questions? Yeah. So number seven, um, along those lines, like, if say we were living, like, in a Holocaust situation again, and as Christians we were free, like, what about helping those being persecuted, even though it's government yeah. ordained? Yeah. Well, it depends. On, what do you mean by helping? What do you mean by helping? Well, like, you know, I've read some stories of people helping the Jews in that time, like helping them, you know, flee to a country where they're free. Or, yeah. So you're going against the law. Putting yourself at risk, you know, for persecution and death as well. But, mm-hmm. but so, isn't that honoring all people? If, but it's, it's also at the same time against what the government said to do. Yeah. And then I guess along those same lines, is it wrong to have a, or are we instructed? There's a lot in that question. Um, yeah, it's a one. I'll, I'll address a few a few things in there. So, remember, part of what we went over here in this teaching was we are not 
required or expected to obey human laws if those laws require us to disobey God's laws or the Bible's instruction. So it says if you're persecuted in one city, flee to another. It also says to relieve the afflicted. So if we help, I'll give you an example. Let's just, let's just say we're in a persecuted country. The government says they're going to come arrest a certain Christian family for their faith. If we go to that, that home and we help them run away, we're relieving the afflicted and helping them flee to another city. So we're obeying scripture when we do that. We're not resisting the authority because we're not, when they come to the house with guns, trying to shoot them all. But we are obeying what scripture says to do, which is to relieve the afflicted and help people flee to another city. So I would say just based on scripture that that would be an okay thing to do. Now, another example where I think it would be wrong is this, uh, you can read about this in the story of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who was a Lutheran pastor during World War II, under Hitler's reign, all that. Um, and he helped conspire with a group that plotted uh, an assassination of Hitler. It didn't work. It wasn't successful. And Bonhoeffer was hung for it. He was not hung for being a pastor. He was hung because he tried to plot Hitler's assassination. Personally, I believe that was wrong. He had his own convictions, but he wasn't acting for the faith. He was acting as a resistance. Um, and that would be an example of something where he, you're now resisting an authority rather than just trying to you know, protect oneself or uh, help people flee from one place to another. So I would say you'll be, you know, safe and uh, right biblically if we focus on helping families flee if they need to. I think that's fine. And if we are ultimately staying in faith and not lying when it comes to protecting ourselves, because you see this in scripture too, where you have people that would lie to try to protect themselves. Rahab did this. He lied about uh, uh, Caleb and Joshua were hiding in Jericho. Um, Hebrew midwives lied about letting the baby boys live when Pharaoh commanded um, the, the babies to be killed or thrown in the Nile River. You read about that in Exodus when Moses was born. Um, and there's a couple other examples. Lying is wrong. There is no case in which lying is right. In those cases, people lied to protect themselves out of, a, out of fear, self-preservation, I believe that if a person had great faith, they would not need to lie and God would just supernaturally protect them in cases like that. But there are times when people give into a weakness, they lie to try to protect themselves. You see that happening with, uh, you know, Jews being smuggled out in the end of places, you know, in World War II and all that. And um, it's up to us if we end up in that kind of position to make sure we're being true to obedience to scripture wherever possible. If we're weak and we fail, of course, we're forgiven and we can move on. But to the best of our ability, we should do what scripture says to do and not try to turn to human efforts of self-preservation that would require us to disobey scripture. So, yes. And David, maybe you address this because I had to step out for a minute. So what is our position supposed to be dealing with when we're encountering injustice? 
because all over the Old Testament, people were, they're commanded to address it, to write it. Injustice. Uh, and, you, and, and it probably depends on how you define injustice. Yeah, that's um, that would be the next question, how you define injustice. For one, in the case where you see God addressing injustice in the Old Testament, try to keep this short, God is rebuking a nation and kings of Israel who were abusing their authority to do wrong rather than right and treating the nation of Israel unjustly. The church is not a human government or nation. It's called a holy nation in first Peter two, but it is of heaven and not of this earth. So when the old Testament rebukes Kings for being unjust and to change their ways, he's speaking to a group of people that God established as a human government. So how it played out looked a little bit different because that meant they had to change laws and regulations and so on and so forth. When you're dealing with the church, it's different because we're not in the seat of politicians, for example, to be able to decide we're going to change all these laws. What we can do from the standpoint of the church is be an influence of the gospel where we can, preach the gospel to whomever, wherever we can. We can vote. We can speak for our rights if rights are being denied us. But if a government decides not to honor that, then that's where we're told our, the ability of our seat stops. And that's where we're told not to resist any longer. So if you're dealing with injustice in the world, we can do what we can to try to speak for what's right, to try to preach the gospel and help people. But living peaceably, as First Timothy says, requires us to stay in our proper seat. And so there is, there is a, a line where it stops. The only people that had the right to use military force was the nation of Israel in the Old Testament because they were not a church. They were a, an earthly kingdom. So they had they had different instructions. That would be my short answer. That. Yeah. Would Psalms 82, 3, and 4 help define when an injustice? Could you read it? I can. It says, define the poor, or excuse me, defend the poor and the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and the needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. Yeah. So, great scripture. When that was written, Israel could do that in a way that included legislation because they were, they were an actual government. The way that it's played out by the church in Acts is that they would take people in to the church who were the poor, the fatherless, and they would grant them what the government wouldn't. And that's where you see the church actually starting to meet each other's needs. And a lot of people misunderstand that part in Acts and they think it's talking about communism, but it's not. Because it's, it's not a government. It's a, it's a church taking care of each other. That's what it means. So in the church, if the government's not helping the poor and needy, you can help them yourself with your resources. In the case of Israel, that included changes of laws because it was actual government. But for us, all we can do is really vote and take care of people to the best of our ability in the context of the church.